0: Welcome to Genesis Unveiled. And tonight, Parshat Vayetzeh is a story of love, family, intrigue, and subterfuge. And Jacob is going to be confronted with similar tests that he had last week, dealing with difficult and unethical people. And he's also going to learn to navigate his romantic life, to build a family, and to build a business. So Jacob is going from being the person who sits in tents, the spiritual personality, to learning to be a worldly personality as well. And Vayetze is to go out. He leaves his home and he really comes of age and matures and becomes his own person. However, the Parsha begins with the scene of Jacob's ladder. Jacob falls into a dream and he sees this vision of a ladder going from heaven to earth and angels going up and down the ladder and god is at the top of the ladder and it shows that he is still a spiritual personality what is the significance of the ladder according to many it is showing that jacob links is learning or needs to learn how to join the physical world and the spiritual world and the angels represent spiritual energies what are angels they're spiritual beings and they're his connection to uh, God and to the spiritual realm, even though he's navigating the physical world. And the question is asked, uh, the angels are going up and down. So normally you'd think angels would come down, they're spiritual beings, and then go back up. So there are several explanations given. One of them is that they're the angels of the land of Israel. So the angels of the land of Israel leave him as he's leaving Israel, and the angels of Chutzla, or it's of outside the land, come down that aren't as spiritually connected and that a person in Israel has a stronger spiritual connection. The other, is, the other explanation is that according to the Torah, when we do physical actions, particularly mitzvot, when we do the commandments, we are activating spiritual energies, which then have an impact in the spiritual worlds. And then that brings more divine blessing back into the world. And that is also the significance of up and down. And God makes him a promise. God promises him the land to him and his descendants. He gives them the promise of Abraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth and that all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. Now, before he left in last week's Parsha, Isaac gave him this blessing also, the blessing of Abraham. And in a sense, this vindicates this question of how Jacob could take the blessing from Esau. This shows that, in fact, Isaac was reserving the primary blessing for Yaakov all along. And it shows here that God is affirming Jacob's buying of the birthright and getting the blessing and being the heir of Abraham. So we see that message reinforced here at the beginning of the Parsha. Now this dream he has, it says that the night came, he goes into a sleep and he has this dream. Where is the dream? He wakes up and he sees, and he says, this is none other than Beit El, this is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now we think of this expression, this idea of a location that connects us to God, where we have a a more direct connection. We think of Mount Moriah, we think of Jerusalem. And sure enough, many of the commentaries uh, say that in fact he was on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. However, Abraham camped in Bethel to the north of Jerusalem. And furthermore... Uh, Today is even a place, a tradition of uh, a town north of Jerusalem in the Shomron called Beit El. So Nachmanides has an ingenious uh, answer to uh, reconcile the two. He says that the the, the gate of heaven is like a ladder. And the ladder begins in Jerusalem, but its top is over Beit El. And that's what Yaakov was connecting to. Some of the other commentaries say that Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, and Batel were conflated. Mount Moriah was brought miraculously to Batel, and that's where he had this experience. Today, you can visit Batel. A friend of mine who lives there took me around. And on this hill, there is a big stone flat area with a raised stone fused from many stones, uh, following the Midrashic tradition that Jacob put stones under his head. And they all wanted to be serving Jacob and they fused into one. So, but the message is that this mundane town that he was called Luz now has the potential to be a godly place. Jacob learning an important lesson that the mundane physical can be transformed into a spiritual, godly experience. And Jacob then makes a promise or takes a vow. And he says, God, if you will protect me and bring me back and provide for me, then I will re-establish, uh, I will come back to this place and offer thanks to you. And he ends by saying, aser, I will definitely also tithe, uh, take tithes. What is that? Taking one-tenth of his livelihood, one-tenth of one's net uh, income, and giving it to God. So we see the ancient uh, sources of giving charity in Judaism, one of the hallmarks of our people and of our communities. Jacob comes to uh, Aram, where uh, his father and mother had told him to go find a wife. He comes to the watering hole and we're gonna see that many br- uh, couples found their besheret at the watering hole. We know already that Rebecca met Uh, the matchmaker for her marriage to Isaac at the watering hole, this matches at the watering hole, and Moshe will meet Zipporah at the watering hole. Water represents blessing, it represents bounty and goodness, and also just simply, you know, these were the first uh, Jewish singles events. That was where you went to to meet people. He comes there, there are these shepherds gathering, and they're just lounging around and said, what are you doing? You should be feeding your flocks and going back on? They said, well, we can't move the stone. All of a sudden, and then he asked, do you know Lavan, uh, my uncle? And he said, sure, in fact, here comes his daughter. And Rachel comes along, and Jacob is struck. It says that he sees her, he kisses her, he raises his voice, and he cries. And then he takes the stone off the well. Now, very strange behavior. What is going on? So, him kissing her is very surprising. How do we understand this, especially in light of the halacha that one doesn't have physical contact with a woman other than one's wife? So, how do we explain this? So, the commentary is the Kitava Kabbalah, Rabbi Yaakov Tzvi Melkenberg, who was a rabbi in Germany and tried to answer questions of modernity and tradition. He explores several possibilities. One, he said that it's metaphorical. They didn't really kiss. Kissing represents a closeness, a intense connection. So it was, it, was, it was soul connection at first sight. And just like it says, Moshe died with God's kiss, obviously metaphorical. So here too, represents the instant connection they felt. Is it possible that such things happen? Uh, two students, uh, he was sitting uh, on the stoop in front of the synagogue this woman walked by, she did a double take, he was walking towards her, and all of a sudden they just started talking, then they started dating, and now yes, they are married. It does happen, but don't count on it. For most people, it does not necessarily happen. So that's one possibility. The other is, he says, that the kiss wasn't, on, uh, wasn't an intimate kiss. It was either on her cheek or on her uh, shoulder, and it was the transmitting of a blessing to her. The third possibility is the kiss was not romantic, it was social. And if you've ever been to France, you see that just like we shake hands, there they kiss hello, goodbye, and uh, it's not, it's a social convention. So uh, he raises his voice and weeps. What is he crying about? So we're gonna see that perhaps it is a foreshadowing. Rabbit says it's a foreshadowing. Um, But what is a foreshadowing of? Perhaps it's a foreshadowing of the stormy and the heartbreaking and the unrequited love relationship that they would have. And spoiler alert, Rebecca's early passing away, dying even though she was the love of his life. And then he removes the stone from off the well. Is he showing off uh, or is he simply uh, allowing her to water her sheep? he didn't ask the others for help. And Nahmani says that the forefathers had great physical strength because of their great spiritual elevation. That spiritual elevation can bring about the whole personality, including great physical strength. So uh, she brings him home. And Lavan comes out to greet him, his uncle. Now, Lavan means white. And we're going to see that Lavan is a different type of personality than Aesop. Whereas Aesop is overtly brutish, Lavan is much more surreptitious. He's much more veiled. And as his name implies, he presents himself as Whitey. You might have heard the story of Whitey Bulger, the uh, Boston criminal who, uh, it turned out, had made a deal with the FBI to snitch on his opponents to get them eliminated, but could get protexia. He was arrested, somehow managed to escape, and uh, was uh, finally found 12 years later, only to be killed by other prisoners in the prison because they realized he was, had been a snitch. So watch out for whiteys. Lavan says to Yaakov, he says, come in, you're welcome here. And then we see him saying, well, why should you work for free? Uh, what do you want? So we see that even though he is the hospitable uncle for his nephew, he already has Yaakov working uh, right, from the, right from the get-go. And Yaakov says what I want is I will work seven years to marry Rachel, your younger daughter. And he specifies that because he knew that Lavan was a trickster The rabbis say they already suspected he might flip Leah for Rachel. And it says he worked seven years. It said those seven years were like days in his mind. Now usually when you're looking forward to something, uh, the end of school when you were a kid, a date with someone you're excited to see again, uh, a new job, usually time passes very slowly. So how do we understand this? Yet at the same time, when we're doing something that is really meaningful, and purposeful, and we have sense of what, why, of our goals, then time doesn't go slowly because we are totally in the moment. We're totally engrossed in our activity. So perhaps that is what it meant. And finally, the seven years are up, the wedding happens, and the next morning, Jacob realizes that a switch has been pulled upon him. And that in fact, Lavan had given him Leah and not Rachel. The rabbis say they had planned for this and had a secret sign because the marital room would have been dark and uh, at traditional weddings at the chuppah, the bride, the veil, is completely covering the bride's face. Yet it says that Rachel uh, gave Leah the sign. She's the one who wouldn't uh, allow Leah to be embarrassed and to have her, the younger sister, be married first the rabbis also say Leah would have been married off to Esau and so she allows it to go forward. And when Jacob protests to Lavan, Lavan says to him, in our place we do not substitute the older for the younger. A veiled criticism of Jacob who had flipped himself for his brother, who would taken prominence over his brother. And as we said last week, this is also... Kind of a divine message that perhaps even though he was justified in supplanting Asov, yet at the same time he seemingly uh, suffered because of it and was punished. So Lavan, being the ultimate uh, strategist, has a plan and he says, "We'll wait for the wheat week to be up. What is the week? So... This is the source for the Sheva Brachot, that we have seven days of celebration after wedding. Then he said, you'll marry Rachel, and then you'll work another seven years for her. So 14 years in all. Jacob has no uh, alternative but to agree, and so um, that's what he's going to go forward and do. Now the question here has to be addressed of how could he marry two women? Is polygamy permitted in the Judaism? And in fact, we see, although polygamy is permitted, it's very clear from the Torah that the ideal is one man and one woman. The ideal is from Adam and Eve. We see the Torah's opening of humanity, that they are Isaac they're helpmates for each other. They become one, they one flesh, the dvekut, the, the closeness between them. And furthermore, you see that Isaac, the only one of the patriarchs to have married only one woman. The rabbis say that after the binding of Isaac, he was like a sanctified offering. So he was holier than the others. He was on a higher, holier level. That's why he never left the land of Israel. And that's why he only married one wife. And even though in later Jewish history uh, there were examples of polygamy in the Talmud, we almost never find it. And in Ashkenazic Jewry, it was prohibited a thousand years ago. So how do we understand it in general? So we have to understand that in the ancient world, uh, it was very difficult for a woman to live, to subsist as her own family unit, in terms of sustaining herself, in terms of protection. And so, in a sense, it was beneficial for the woman, even if she has to be the second wife, uh, men died in battle. Men lived, didn't live as long. And so the practical realities made it sometimes that it was more beneficial for the woman to be married, even if the married was, man was married to someone else. Okay, so the next uh, part of our Parsha is the building of the family. And we see that uh, this will unfold uh, with lists of children being born till all 13 children are born. And it starts out, with the birth of children to Leah. It says, God saw that Leah was hated, so he opened up her womb and Rachel was barren. So how do we understand this? So it says that um, Jacob uh, that uh, Jacob also loved Rachel more than Leah. And that's why Leah felt uh, hated. But the rabbis tell us that uh, this is really subjective. When it says also loved uh, Rachel, meaning he loved Leah as well. But when it uh, is clear to her that uh, Rachel is Jacob's real true love, she felt like he hated her. Now the children are born and it's very bittersweet. Uh, the first one, Ruvain, she says, maybe. Ru'u, maybe my husband will see that uh, and my suffering and will love me. Shimon, God has heard that I'm hated and he gave me another son. Levi, maybe now my husband will accompany me, will uh, be my companion. And finally with Yehuda, now I praise God. So it does seem to be with the children. uh, It did get better. Although generally we say don't uh, have children to save a relationship and children will not necessarily save a relationship, they will just make the issues that are there worse. But in this case, building the family, this unique case, uh, it did seem to help her. And then it says that Rachel now was jealous of Leah. And you see that it's always like, uh, you know, the uh, grass is greener on the other side. So, So Rachel calls out to Jacob and says, "Uh, why don't I have children? I might as well be dead. And Jacob yells back at her, do you think I'm God that I'm holding back children from you? And we see that their relationship, even though there was great love, was also very tumultuous and very stormy. And sometimes this type of unrequited love, this type of passionate relationship, can have a lot of ups and downs, as opposed to the seemingly more stable yet, less passionate relationship that he had with Leah. So, uh, Rachel does what Sarah had done. She takes her servant, uh, Bilhah, and gives her to Jacob, and they have a son, Dan, and another son, Naphtali. Then Leah took her servant, Zilpah, and they had two more children, Gad and Asher. And whereas for... Uh, Hagar and Ishmael did not end well. They wound up outside of the family. Here, it does seem to work. And in essence, these two maidservants become shvachot. They become uh, secondary pilag shod, secondary wives. It is a formalized relationship, but not a full uh, marriage relationship. The next scene is also uh, involved in the family dynamic with wives and children. Uh, Ruvain, uh Leah's son finds these Dudaim, translated as mandrakes, is beloved, and they're perhaps some type of aphrodisiac or some type of fertility plant because Rachel goes to Leah and said, could I have the plants? She asked her for them. Rachel says, you took my husband, now you want to take these? She said, what are you going to offer me? So Rachel says, you can have my turn with Jacob. It seems that once again, there's four wives, that there there was a schedule, and Rachel gave up her turn for the long-term benefit of perhaps having more chance of having children. Leah goes out and shockingly says to Jacob, it's my turn with you tonight, and that I earned through these plants which I gave. And it says that God heard Leah and that she was given a reward and she had a son, Yisachar. What was the reward? The reward was perhaps either that uh, she had um, given the plants to, uh, to Rachel, or that she had given her servant to, uh, to have more children, so Jacob could have more children. And then uh, the final son, Zvulun, she has making six children, half of the twelve sons were from Leah. And, uh, we, uh, and then she gives birth to a daughter, Dina, and Dina will figure prominently in the coming weeks. It says that God finally remembers Rachel, and he opens up her womb, and she gives birth to Yosef. And also, bittersweet, she says, now God has taken away my embarrassment, Asaf, to take away, but really Yosef, she calls him Yosef because, she says, may God give me another son she in her first son she already asks a prayer through the name to have another son and we'll talk about in part two uh jewish names hebrew names and what is their meaning and uh, their significance and why they are so important so that will be a separate podcast so the family is built And now we turn to the business matters, to Jacob's livelihood. And he's working for the father-in-law. Never a good thing. Family and business can be very complicated, especially with in-laws. So after 14 years, Jacob asked to go home. And Lavan says, stay with me. Name me your price. So Jacob says, this is what I want. I want the spotted sheep, the spotted flocks, which perhaps were viewed as subpar to the completely uh, colored ones of a single color. And Jacob will continue shepherding all the flocks, but he said, I don't want just to be paid, I want equity in the business. So Lavan gives it to him and Jacob then proceeds to go with a whole breeding strategy and the spotted flock outgrows the solid one and Jacob becomes prosperous. And here it seems that Jacob was using, uh, even though Lavan outwitted him with his wives, here Jacob seems to outwit Lavan. And while what he does is within the parameters of their agreement, he uh, finds breeding techniques that grew his sheep and not necessarily Lavan's. So then he hears that Lavan's sons are grumbling. They're saying Jacob is taking things from us and Lavan's attitude had changed as well. And uh, God comes to Jacob and he says, Jacob, now it's time to go back. You need to return to the land of your fathers. And Jacob had had dreams about how to breed the flocks. And I heard someone say that when you start dreaming about business, that's when you know it's time to get out. And um, we'll talk next week about how Jacob stayed an extra six years, seven years outside of Israel and away from his parents. He didn't have to stay after 14 years, or did he? Um, so that question will be explored next week. So here we have um, Jacob then calls in his wives, Rachel and Leah, and he explains to them. He says, your father's turned against me. He's resentful of me for the flocks and for, for, my, for, for the hard work I've done. He's changed the terms on me 10 times trying to cheat me. Yet." uh god did not let him hurt me and then uh he says and god has told me to go home so they are totally on the same page as him they say we also we realize that we don't nothing comes from our father except that which you have grown our father is treating us like strangers and uh if this is god's will we are totally on board What's so interesting is Jacob used the practical arguments first before using the God argument. And this is a very important lesson that sometimes within couples, within families, there might be a reason to do something that follows the Torah or something that is additional, uh, but it should always be presented in terms of the benefits of what it, uh, what, the meaning behind it and not simply say, well, this is what God wants, we have to do it. So even Jacob takes that approach. So the great escape. And it says that Jacob took his wives and his children and his flocks and he left. No goodbyes. And we can imagine he didn't know what Lavan would have in store for him if he tried to leave. Lavan finds out. He overtakes them and he comes to them. And right before their encounter, God comes to Lavan and says, Do not... uh, do anything to Jacob. So Lavan comes to Jacob to his camp and says, why did you run off with my daughters? You ran off with with them like captives. Why didn't you tell me? I would have sent you off with celebration and joy and music. And of course, once again, Lavan uh, talks a good talk, but we know what his actions were. And then he threatens. We see uh, how sincere he was about what he said. He said, I could hurt you, but God came to me and warned me. And then he asked, did you steal my idols as well? Accusing him, and it seems, the Torah tells us, that Rachel had stolen his idols, uh, presumably so that he would not continue to worship idols. And he searches the entire camp, going through every tent and every bag. And when he comes into Rachel's tent, she doesn't get up. Even though one is supposed to stand up when a parent enters the room, she apologizes saying it's the time of the month and she had the idols underneath her. And now Jacob is furious. And by the way, the Torah does tell us that Jacob stole Lavan's heart. Did he deceive him? He ran away in the middle of the night. Was that right? Once again, morally ambivalent. He could have been in danger if he told Lavan. Lavan might have held the daughters or the uh, grandchildren hostage. Who knows what he would be capable of? And yet the Torah is critical of how Jacob handled it. He didn't handle it directly. It's all uh, indirect. Uh, this image of Jacob holding on to his brother's heel. It's all from underneath. It's all uh, not confrontational. And we'll see that next week he will learn to confront his brother Esau directly. So Jacob is furious. He uh, lashes out at Lavan, I worked for you through hot and cold, and I never lost an animal for you. You changed my terms of service, my uh, pay, 10 times. I worked 20 years, 14 for the children, 6 for myself, and God has now vindicated me. So uh, Lavan turns around and says to Jacob, "Uh, Everything you have is mine. The, your, do, the, your wives are mine, your, grand, your children are mine, your flocks are mine. And of course Jacob had worked hard for them. And then Lavan turns around and said, but let's make a, a, a covenant. Let's make a pact. So seemingly he wants to bury the hatchet. He builds a mound symbolically showing their agreements, but sa- then says, I won't cross this mound and go towards you and you won't cross and come back to me. So Lavan is breaking it off. But in the end, he gives them a blessing as they are about to leave. So Lavan, constantly hot and cold, constantly uh, subterfuge, and yet at the same time does give a blessing. And and this is Jacob's confrontation. This next chapter of his his life is now closed. He's built a family, he's acquired wealth. He has navigated this uh, treacherous father-in-law And it says he traveled and the angels of God came upon him. And presumably the angels of of the land of Israel is reconnecting on a stronger spiritual plane after having built his life outside of the land of Israel. And next week we'll see, but coming back will not be simple because he has to deal with his brother Esau, who he left 20 years earlier and who wanted to kill him. How will he handle this? And we shall see. Have a good evening.